You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 17. Erica is going to read for us as we read this last bit of chapter 2. Verses 13 through 17. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, Stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Well, history is full of tenacious people, inspiring leaders who held fast, and who have not given up. And I wouldn't even know where to begin a list of examples. Many of these stories, of course, turn into our books or the movies that we see in theater. But I have to admit that the very first answer that came to my mind, thinking of someone tenacious, was this cartoon of a frog being swallowed by a stork. Never give up. That's tenacious. Even as the frog is caught in the stork's beak, His hands are around the stork's neck. But there's another example that comes to mind, and I do want to tell this story as well. It was 1987. A man and his family had just sat down for breakfast. It happened to be a Sunday morning. And no sooner had they settled around the table for family breakfast than they started to smell smoke. And they quickly discovered that their house was on fire. It was a blaze that burned so fast that it quickly consumed their entire house to the point that the family narrowly escaped with their lives. Once outside, the man tried to pick up his garden hose, but it melted in his hand. That's how hot the fire was burning. The house was a total loss, and in the investigation later, it was determined that the fire had actually been set by an arsonist who had doused the entire back staircase with lighter fluid. The perpetrator was never caught, was never identified, and this man was deeply shaken, traumatized by the idea that someone had tried to kill him and his family. And so they had to start over. Their house was gone except for one room in the basement that had gone unscathed. It was the man's studio. He was a musician. And over the next year, he and his family rebuilt the house on the same foundation with that studio still intact. When it was finished, the man wrote a song called I Won't Back Down. His name is Tom Petty. What does it mean to be a tenacious person? And what does tenacity have to do with faith, with following Jesus? These are the questions that we're going to ask today as we pick up this Little paragraph in Second Thessalonians. N.T. Wright said, Considering how brief these verses are, they offer a remarkably full summary statement 
both of Christian theology and of Christian practice. And I thought, he's exactly right. And so I outlined the passage, what we're going to look at today, under three main headings. What God has done, what we're to do, and what the future will hold. What God has done, what we're to do, and what the future will hold. So we'll begin with the first, what God has done. One of the things that we note about Paul and his letters, think back to Pastor Andrew's sermon, gratitude permeates his perspective. And Paul is somebody who really would have had a lot to complain about, but he didn't. His life was steeped in gratitude. Verse 13, we look at how this begins. It says, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord. So these are the believers in Thessalonica he's writing to. This fledgling little community of those who were following Christ, where Paul, along with Silas, had brought the good news of Jesus and planted the church, one of the first churches in all of Europe. And Paul is just overwhelmed by gratitude as he writes from afar. He's probably in Corinth as he writes this, and he's thinking of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's what prompts his gratitude, at least in this verse. He says, because, so this is stating the reason, right? Because God chose you as first fruits to be saved. There's more coming in the verse, but we'll just pause here briefly. Each of the three headings that we'll look at today are going to have two subpoints. So we've got this first heading, what God has done, and the first bullet point, the first item underneath that is going to be this. God chose you. What has God done? He chose you. Now this is the biblical teaching of election. It has nothing to do with politics. It's not a political election. It is a far more important election the election to faith, that you are chosen by God to belong to his family. We think back to some words of Jesus in John 15. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Now this morning, we won't get mired down in debates. Maybe you didn't even know that there's official debates about this, but even stating it causes the question to rise up about predestination and free will and There's something called double predestination. We won't get into any of that, but we'll just stick to the plain teaching of Scripture. Ephesians 1.4 is another spot that says, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. Which, that's like the emoji, the mind-blown emoji for me. I mean, to try and wrap your brain around this, that before God created the entire world, all that we see and live in, That he was thinking of you. That he thought of you and decided to choose you. It's just mind-blowing. I'm many years now from elementary school, and so I don't know if they still do this. I probably should ask my elementary-age kids how this works on the playground. But I remember growing up that when we played at recess, we would pick teams. Our favorite game to play was football. And so usually it would be the two captains who were in charge of selecting the teams. And so all the boys would line up, and we would just go captain to captain, and and you would, would pick players until everybody was gone. And you would stand there in that line. Some of you are transported back, and you have these memories. Maybe some good, maybe not so good. And you would stand in that line just hoping and wishing that you would get picked. That you wouldn't be standing there till the end embarrassed, and unwanted, 
as the bottom of the barrel. You wanted to be chosen. Why is Jesus called our Redeemer? It's because He finds us in our misery, in our sin, in our shame, and He says, I want that one. That's why He's called Redeemer. He says, not only do I want that one, but I will pay any price for his or her life, even dying on the cross to save them. That's what it means to be chosen by God to be saved. And for the Thessalonians, Paul also highlights the agency of their salvation. It says, God chose you to be saved. Now we pick up the last clause. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. So how are we saved? It is God at work. That's clear right out of the gate here. It is the Holy Spirit who initiates salvation. And it is through believing in the truth. Through our faith. Knowing, trusting, believing that the message of Jesus is true. And I want you to keep in mind the context for the Thessalonians. The background of this letter is that false teaching had crept its way in and had brought all kinds of confusion and heartache to this community of Christ followers. And so Paul is saying, believe in the truth. Believing in true things and not false things about God is essential. It is critical. So that's the first thing that God has done. In summary, He chose us. And then verse 14 gives us the other C word. He called you. So He chose you. And he called you. Here's the verse. He called you to this, to be saved, through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chosen and called. This combo of words, I think, is incredibly powerful. They communicate so much about identity and purpose. Something every one of us longs to know about. Angela Duckworth wrote a book. Maybe you've seen her TED Talk. The book was called Grit, a topic which is not unrelated to tenacity. And she gives us this picture of calling. She writes, three bricklayers are asked, what are you doing? The first says, I am laying bricks. The second says, I am building a church. The third says, I am building the house of God. She concludes, the first bricklayer has a job. The second has a career. The third has a calling. You are not only chosen as God's child, but you are called for a purpose that you might share in the glory of the Lord. Now, glory is one of those Bible words that for me can be a little tricky to picture. I don't really know how to understand it or define it right off the bat. But I thought perhaps our playground football analogy could help us. Because being chosen, if that is getting picked to play on the team, then called to glory is what happens when that little kid grows up to play in the NFL and the team he plays on wins the Super Bowl. The confetti's coming down, the game is over, the Lombardi trophy is presented. One day, Jesus will come in all of his glory and we get to be on his team and celebrate his victory. Honor for the Thessalonians would have, of course, been a big deal because they lived in the Greco-Roman world where honor was the highest social value. 
And those who believed in Christ, because they made that choice, they were often stripped of their honor. They were disgraced, persecuted, disdained, because they followed a crucified Savior who died a humiliating death on a cross. They didn't worship all the other cool gods of the Roman pantheon. They lived morally upright lives that were in accordance with God's word, and that won the ire of their neighbors. And so they shared in Jesus' sufferings, and yet they held on to this, and this is what Paul writes about, it wasn't the end of the story. They knew that they were called one day to share in his glory when he returns again. So that's what God had done, what God has done. He chose you, we'll personalize it. He chose you and he called you. Now Paul moves into how we respond to this truth. In light of these things, here's number two, what we're to do. This is now the second paragraph in that little reading. Verse 15. So then, you can see Paul's drawing a conclusion, right? Based on what he just said. So then, brothers and sisters, two things. So we had chosen and called. Here's your next two. Stand firm and hold fast. What are we to do? Stand firm and hold fast. Stand firm is a frequent refrain in Paul's letters. This whole series in 2 Thessalonians we're calling Still Standing because 1 Thessalonians already talked about standing firm in the Lord. The Thessalonian believers faced immense pressure to cave on their faith, to give up on following Jesus. The vast majority of people around them that they did life with and lived in their city, they were heading a different direction, living a much different life. And so this choice to follow Jesus was isolating. It was uncommon to live this way and to follow this crucified king, to adhere to biblical teaching. Reminded of words of Jesus again, where he says, Wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So what's his invitation? He says later, I am the gate. I am the way, and the truth, and the life. How are you being called to stand firm these days? There are so many ways that you and I can get knocked off our feet or let off course. And I thought maybe we'd just borrow a couple of examples from the Thessalonians and see if we can apply them. Perhaps you're in a season that is pretty difficult. Maybe you're not suffering for your faith like they did, but there are other hardships that you're facing, things that can weigh heavily on your spirit or dampen your passion for spiritual growth. How are you being called to stand firm in your faith? Another example, maybe standing firm is being tested because being a Christian just is not as socially acceptable anymore. Maybe you're growing up in this world and you're thinking, man, there's... Other options that just seem a little more attractive or comfortable or appealing. And maybe, you know, this whole church thing we just shouldn't take so seriously. You can fill in the blank. Just a couple ideas. But I would like you to ask the question and answer it. How can I stand firm in my faith right now? 
Because this will be tested in every generation. It doesn't matter if it's a first century Thessalonian or a 21st century American. And with that, we'll look at the second of the two imperatives a little bit more. Hold fast. The sentence goes on from there, as you notice in the text, to give it more definition. It says, hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Now what Paul is talking about, we would call apostolic teaching. And that simply means teaching from the apostles. And who are the apostles? They were the eyewitnesses of Jesus, those that he taught and discipled in commission. In the broader sense, as we think about the whole Old and New Testament together, we would call it not apostolic teaching, but biblical teaching. Hold to historic, orthodox, biblical teaching. Hold fast to it. And then the opposite is true as well. Stay clear of what is not, and that would be the term that we use called heresy. Now, I find this is one of the great challenges of our time. How do we hold fast to biblical teaching without picking fights with people around us? Do you understand my question? There is a certain tension here, isn't there? If you go back to the cartoon that I shared, how do I not get swallowed by the stork but not wring his neck in the process? That's the tension. So on the one hand, I don't want to acquiesce to a non-Christian culture, but I don't want to go to war with culture either. That's not what we're called to do. I'm called to love and care for people. Jesus says, even my enemy. So how do I uphold the truth without clobbering people with it? It's very easy to resolve this tension by settling on one side or the other. So either you might find yourself tempted to compromise the truth, meaning we go soft on biblical teaching, or you're going to solve it on this side of the equation and we compromise grace. When we do that, we look a whole lot like the Pharisees in the Bible. But you don't have to choose. Jesus gave us both, grace and truth. And in a sense, they cannot even be separated or practiced apart from each other. Grace without truth is wishy-washy. You frankly don't even need grace if there is no truth. It is just mushy sentimentalism without substance. But truth apart from grace is brutal. And that's not what truth is supposed to be in the Bible. The truth is life-giving. It's beautiful. It sets you free. But not when it's without grace. Because none of us could measure up. Truth in isolation is crushing. As a disciple of Jesus, you are called to live out this tension of grace and truth right into the teeth of culture that tells you you cannot do it. It will not always be easy. And so Paul tells us, stand firm and hold fast. And that brings us to our final heading of the passage, the third little paragraph, what the future will hold. What the future will hold. Verse 16 and 17 might look like a benediction of sorts, a closing blessing. It's actually a prayer that Paul is expressing that he's praying for the Thessalonians and by application for us. Here's what it says. 
May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who lo- this next thing is a, it's a sermon in and of itself, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. We have to save that for another time, but that is rich. That's the Father's love. May he do two things. May he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So what will the future hold? God will encourage you, and God will strengthen you. Now, the word there for encourage is used a couple of different ways. I found this really interesting. The first Greek context where you run into this word outside the Bible is in military writings. Because this word would be used for soldiers who are facing adversity, and they're about to head into battle. And a word of encouragement is given to them. Maybe think of like the old movie Braveheart or something like that. But there's another place we run into the word, and that is in the setting of grief and loss. So there's other Greek writings where they'd use this word when a person is consoling a friend who's lost a loved one. And so that's why some of your translations, I believe the ESV would be one of them, will say comfort instead of encourage, trying to pick up this nuance. But it is comprehensive. God will encourage you and He will strengthen you in every good deed and word. And you can see, even as he writes this, this is a prayer, but is also implicit teaching for us to align our actions and our words with what we are asking God to do. So that's the passage. I do want to return to Tom Petty, though, as we close. As you might remember from the news, or maybe you're a fan He died not too long ago. It was 2017. Tom Petty died an accidental overdose on pain meds. And I don't know where he stood in his relationship with God. I'm not aware of any indication that he was a believer. But I want you to listen to this allusion to Matthew 16 that's in the opening lines of his song. Well, I won't back down. You've got to have the pauses in there, don't you? As you hear. Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. Listen, you could stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. I don't know about Tom Petty, but how about you? Are you a believer? Can you sing this song? If you have placed your trust in Christ, then I assure you this morning that your past, present, and your future are all accounted for. And so my encouragement to you is to stand firm because God saved you. And he will strengthen you to the finish. Let's bow in prayer together. Oh, Father, we too want to always be thankful. No matter what comes our way. We recall these profound truths this morning, Lord, that you chose us. You've called us. 
And your word says that you will encourage and strengthen us all the days of this life. So Lord, my prayer for me and for my brothers and sisters here is that you would teach us to stand firm. That you would teach us to hold fast to the truth of your word. We ask this for Jesus' sake and in his name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.